Welcome to Threat Talk, a new podcast series from Infoblocks. My name is Peter Gothard, and I've been writing about IT security for nearly eight years as a journalist and consultant. In this series, we're setting out to map the cybercrime landscape. With the help of experts and hackers, I'll dig into the methods and motivations of those exploiting vulnerable businesses and aim to provide solutions to combat the threat they pose. Please do not connect any devices to the Hydro network. Do not turn on any devices connected to the Hydro network. Please disconnect any device from the Hydro network. Await new update. Well, that was a message hastily typed and taped to the window that greeted workers at Norsk Hydro's Norwegian headquarters on the 19th of March, 2019. The manufacturing firm had been hit with a new and ruthless strain of ransomware known as Lokagoga. The attack had shut down the company's global network and disrupted the operation of its plant, where a sizable chunk of the world's aluminium is produced. Uh, it soon became clear that this was no normal ransomware heist, and the involvement of heavy manufacturing equipment posed potentially great levels of danger to staff working at those plants. News of the incident surfaced other similar Lokagoga attacks on manufacturing companies around the world, and an increasingly worrying picture began to emerge. Ransomware attacks are becoming not only more common, but bigger, bolder, and more reckless as well. Far from moving on from this established form of attack, bad actors have instead grown more adept at circumventing commonplace antivirus measures. A 2019 Sonic War report shows global ransomware volume increasing by 11% year on year. So what can be done to stem the tide and prevent further incidents on this scale from actually occurring? Well, here to discuss that with me today are Gary Cox, who is Technology Director for Western Europe at Infoblox, and Mike Godfrey, who is the CEO of Insinia Security. Welcome, guys. Hello, Peter. Hi. So looking at this recent spate of, of Lokagoga attacks which I've just been talking about, um, it seems as though ransomware poses as big a threat as ever. Uh, how have you seen ransomware actually evolve in recent years? So I think um, the, one of the biggest evolutions that we see now is that it doesn't need to be you know, the main players. There's this concept of ransomware as a service now. It's very, very easy to commoditize um, these types of ransomware attacks. So when we combine that with the uh, ever-changing and evolving vectors that, that uh, the bad actors use to try and get into organizations, enterprises, it, it really is an evolving landscape. Um, the, the tactics that are used, the tools that are used, they are always changing. And I think also, if we look at it now, there's there's two sides to this. There's the how does the bad guy, bad actor, get into an organisation, and then what is their goal once they're in there? Um, there is you know the traditional ransomware. I'm going to hold your data, you know, and you you give it back to you potentially if you pay me some some money slash Bitcoin. Um, and then of course there's there's crypto. So there's you know different different means to an end. Sure. And when you talked about commoditizing it, how's that actually being done now? Is that just kind of go on the dark net, buy some service, you know, or, or is it a more industrialized form of commercialization? How, how's that sort of manifesting? Yeah. So in, in essence, it, it's exactly that. So there are multiple uh, RAS 
services, so ransomware as a service platforms that are out there. Um, they differ in terms of their technical complexities and nuances, but ultimately they are designed by someone and deployed as a service. That person or that entity will take a royalty and the criminal, the person who's actually attacking the enterprise or the organization, uh, they're going to take a, a cut of the profits. It's it's as simple as that. It's a, it, call it pyramid selling for bad guys, right? <laughs> and on that, I'd say that sort of ransomware's definitely changed over time. So we've gone from CryptoLocker, which was your more domestic computer, um, like we said, to, to server attacks and encryption of servers, um, now to, to ransomware as a service, like we say. So as you rightly say, if you go on the dark net, you can buy this as a service, you can provide hackers as a huge, well, I don't know if you want to name them, but it's a huge organization called Rainmaker Labs, who people think are a, a big hacking collective. Um, and if you tell them what you've got, what version you've got, um, and what kind of patches you've got on that version, they'll write you a piece of ransomware for that. Um, so a lot of these are inside attacks, which makes it very difficult to investigate because obviously it's somebody that's quite often got knowledge of your system. Um, and we've definitely seen it evolve, and it's going to continue to evolve. So, I mean, it sounds like the odds are kind of stacked against businesses or against the enterprise. How can people even start to begin protecting themselves from these, you know, finely focused, specially written attacks? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think the main thing is organizations need to go back to basics. And by basics, what I mean is get their cyber hygiene right in the first place. Of course, you know, there's lots of vendors out there they can go and talk to about product. But the reality is get your backups right. Make sure they're done. Make sure they're checked. They're tested. Do they work? Train your employees. You know, it, it's not a question of... of an employee feeling like they're going to be scrutinized for flagging something. They should be praised for that, but they need to be trained first. So, yeah, get the policies in place, get the cyber hygiene right, then look at products, vendors, tool sets, controls to then back that up. Right. Because inevitably something will slip through it. And Mike, I don't know if you've got something else to add to that. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. And um, obviously when we look at encryption attacks, a lot of them come from phishing. So, like we say, employee education is a huge thing. Um, but also, we shouldn't treat an encryption attack any differently as, as we should a disaster. So, if you have a flood in a server room, it should be treated in the same way. You should have a really good cyber incident response plan, um, which covers all of this. Now, as, as Gary's rightly said, if you've got real-time backups, none of our clients would ever pay a ransom because they'd be in a position to recover quite quickly. And that's often that's absolutely correct, that cyber hygiene is key. Um, in, in defending these attacks. They're going to happen. They're going to get free stuff. A lot of these encryption um, types of malware and attacks are, are very, very good or what we call flooding. So they're fully undetectable. So that really is the only way of protecting properly from it. Is there a DNS angle to this at all as well? Um, you know, it's, it's clearly attractive to hackers um, as, an, as an attack vector. And is there any way that businesses can can use DNS in their defences? Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, we talked about cyber hygiene. That needs to come first and foremost. I think we'll probably reiterate that several times through this, through this podcast. It is the most important thing. However, when you start to get into the controls, DNS can be one of those controls. So, you know, Mike talked about phishing just a, just a second ago. If we use DNS and we look at, for example, newly observed domains, so there's some fantastic newly observed domain intelligence feeds out there, Farsight do one, Serbal do one, they're, they're, they're really, really good. And 
that is one way. It's not the only way and it's not perfect, but that is one way of trying to prevent from your user accidentally clicking on that phishing link. Because what we're doing there is we're, we're looking and, and we're getting proactive with DNS. Instead of being reactive and saying it needs to be a known threat, mm -hmm. instead I'm taking my business and I'm saying I'm, I'm not going to allow my users to go to any domain that's just been registered in the last hour, day, week, month, whatever you know, period it may be, because there's no business justification for them going there. And by doing that, what we're stopping is we're stopping that link from being executed the domain won't be resolved, ergo, you know, nothing's going to happen. Of course, that doesn't stop um, that user moving off of the network to a different location, going to Starbucks, going to a hotel, and then trying again, right? We can't fix stupid. But, <laughs> you know, DNS is certainly one vector, and that's just that's just one, one way, newly observed domains. But, I mean, it's um, it should be a layered defense. DNS should be in there along with all of the other... Uh, you know, security controls, be they traditional or next-gen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what I'd say on that is that DNS really is the roadmap of the internet. Um, and if you can exploit that, and this has been something which has been going on for years, so DNS um, exploitation, ARP spoofing, so address resolution protocol um, spoofing, if someone can control that, they can control your access to the internet um, and where you're rooted. So, of course, it's a huge thing. And obviously, as, as ethical hackers, it's something that's been on our radar for a long time, even when we go back to software such as Kane and Able, um, which is one of the early hacking tools. So it's been around for a long time, but in reality, do people do enough to protect their DNS? Probably not, in my opinion. No, I, I you know, heard a statistic recently uh, which suggests that even at this point, sort of 91% of attacks involve DNS on some level. A, a lot of people still aren't plugging that very, very necessary gap because it's, it's almost like it's not sexy enough. Like A lot of people just aren't talking about it much um, well, in, in the face of these wider, more interesting headline threats. Absolutely. I mean, you know, for so many years, DNS has been considered part of the plumbing. Yeah. It's it's not considered as uh, a sexy security control, if we can call any security control sexy, right? But it's just it's just not considered that way. It's plumbing. As as Mike said, it's the phone book of, of the internet. It is that that roadmap. And and that's it. It's it's name to number, number to name translation and, and that's where it stops. And it's it's where it shouldn't stop. Um, you know, DNS can be used for so many really useful things from threat hunting, as I mentioned a minute ago, newly observed domains you know, as long as you get high reputation, good quality intelligence into DNS, it becomes as valuable as any other control. In your guys' minds, in your experience, what, what kind of are the, the best ways you can actually educate your users just to be more hygienic proactive ways you can actually educate people and sort of help people to help themselves what we identified quite quickly at Insinia is that people don't really care about your network a lot of people just want to come to work get on with work and that's it so what we found actually the best way of training them on a network is to train them on a network they care about and that's their home network. So what we do is we teach a lot of people how to secure their home network, how to secure their Facebook account. Now, in turn, by way of doing that, 
if they can protect their Facebook account or have a strong password, they're used to using strong passwords. So one of the things that we always say is strong password policies, are they good or bad? Well, literally from experience, they're quite bad. Because if you're telling people to change their passwords every day, every week, every month for something highly intricate, so uppercase, lowercase, special characters, etc., what you're actually doing is providing them with a task which they can't do. They can't remember those passwords. So they've only got one option or two options, really, and that's to write them down or use a password manager. If they write them down, when we go on penetration tests, we lift keyboards up, we pick locks on drawers, nine times out of ten, <laughs> passwords are there. Or the post-it notes just on the monitor. That's it, exactly. Yeah. In fact, the BBC have broadcast a number of passwords from places like um, the BR, so the National Rail Control Centre, where uh, their passwords have been stuck on screens. So it does happen. So, yeah, when it comes to training, really, we found the best way is to train people on something they care about, not something they don't. Gary, you got anything to build uh, on that? No, I mean, that's... <laughs> That's spot on. I mean, I think you know, when it comes to user education, um, from a business perspective, it can never be punitive. If someone wants to flag up and say, I'm not sure about this email, I'm not sure about this, this attachment, I, you know, is this legitimate? You know, even if it's my manager sending me an email, if the tone of it just sounds wrong, mm. There should be no punitive action there for, for me as an employee flagging that up and saying, uh, you know, was this you? Yeah. you know, to my manager? Just questioning it. There's nothing wrong with having questions. And I think that is a culture that um, lots of organisations you know, probably need to take the next step on and just, just you know, get to that point where it's not a punitive culture. It's, it's one of, let's, let's be inquisitive. Let's just double click on something <laughs> bad term i appreciate when we're talking about fishing let's not double click on it but you know what i mean let's let's just dive into something and say is this correct you yeah know, is yeah, this sure. is this legitimate it, it's it's kind of responsibility thing isn't it we are in this almost hinterland now between entire culture changes and just sort of micro culture changes and uh, just out of interest i mean where where sort of do you guys think the responsibility does lie or should lie is it is it just with everybody or, or is there a certain level of management or is this you know it's, how would it best work so so from my perspective it's security should be everyone's responsibility but from a organizational perspective lead from the top if the cyber hygiene is being done right from the very top all the way down to the very bottom of a company that's a company i'd like to work at you know that's that's the way i look at it um, so yeah, it's everyone's responsibility. It's shared responsibility, but equally, you know, if employees see their managers um, flouting that policy and 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 doing things that that they're being asked not to do, well, that. That's not right. Yeah, and I've obviously got quite an interesting story about this. So, so I'm the CEO of a company. We employ 40 people. And inevitably, I'm responsible for the security of our company. So I think that it really takes people to stand up and say, look, I'm responsible. And um, what you find is that a lot of people higher up in companies might not be as technical. But an interesting story that I've got, we got called to do a forensic investigation on a cyber attack. And when we got there, the, the guy had been there. He was kind of the sys and the admin. He'd worked at the organization for a couple of years. And he'd inherited a really bad system. And he had some great recommendations on what to do. So next gen firewall some really, really good stuff, which, which would have been great. Sadly, it took a massive attack against them to start those things happening. So we completely agreed with him and said, look, your recommendations are spot on, really. That's exactly what you should have. And so we said, yeah, that's what you should put in place. Guess who pushed back on actually doing it? 
the guy that had recommended it. And the reason why is because for two years, he'd had a complete get out saying, look, it's nothing to do with me. I've inherited this system. Absolutely nothing to do with me whatsoever. And it was a daunting prospect that he was now going to be responsible for this kit. Because if he puts in stuff that he's recommended, the, the CEO or whoever is then going to be saying to him, right, why is our network not working? Why is this not working? Whereas what I said to him is that rather than pushing back and leaving your network insecure, we'll support you 100%. Whatever questions you've got, whatever you need, we'll support you. But do the right thing and don't push back on the recommendations that you've made because you're only making a rod for your own back, really. I guess he just he wasn't used to the idea that other people actually take an interest in it because it's almost it's like originally it was here's a theoretical way that this could work. The issue is the culture. So he thought that when he put those things in place, he was going to be solely responsible. Mm-hmm. Now, for me in senior, like we said, inevitably I'm responsible for, for what our company does. So he should have been properly supported by the organisation. But at the same time, I do get it's very difficult for a 55-year-old CEO who's gone from having no tech to loads of tech to properly support somebody in cybersecurity. Um, but if they're not in a position to do that, they need to put people in place that are in a position to. On a sort of C-suite level, like how have you found that sort of interaction if in the past you've been going to the board trying to talk to them about security and, and maybe the entire C-suite doesn't understand or the CEO doesn't or the MD doesn't, you know, are what are the best ways to sort of try and get a 55-year-old man who writes everything on paper to understand tell them how much money they're going to lose that's 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 spot on I I was yeah I was going to say it slightly differently Mike but I think that that hits the nail on the head nicely I mean yeah I mean you know one of the the challenges I think of 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 CISOs security practitioners in general is converting the technical the things they want to fix into business language business justification they can take to the board to someone who's not technical to say these are the impacts, these are the risks to your business. You know, if, if your company makes makes widgets, these are the things that can stop it making widgets. Right? Something that they'll actually understand. And and that's that's a, you know that's a it's an interesting challenge because it's a non technical challenge. It's it's a completely, you know, human challenge. Yeah, and an interesting point on that is that we say to people, so we, we get called to a, a lot of things post event, so post exploitation. And um we say to people, right, what team are you going to assemble? So who's going to investigate it? And everyone says straight away, network administration system administrator. Now, if there's somebody that's an insider in that organisation who's carried out this attack, it undoubtedly is going to be them because they've got the technical expertise. So what you really need is somebody that's a decision maker in the company. So you need somebody, like you say, C-suite, um, who can make those decisions, somebody in PR, somebody in legal, somebody in technical. It takes that group of people to properly investigate a cyber attack, not just your technical people. So involving them more and them properly understanding what's going to be expected of them in the wake of a cyber attack is key. And are you finding, you know, with clients you work with or just people you know generally enterprise that this situation is getting better well i think from from our perspective we've never engaged on a penetration test where we've not got what we set out to get and we've never been caught on a penetration test so are people getting better yeah i'd say people are getting more sophisticated but sorry attacks so for example a lot of what we do is is called organization decapitation where if we've got a huge organization you're not going to attack that whole organization what you're going to do is pick 10 people um, and attack them when we look at how that happens and there's a a huge company that was done for a a couple of million quid where um hackers had and and let's not forget as well that the the reconnaissance phase is often the longest phase you could have reconnaissance for a couple of years and an attack carried out in a number of minutes and um one of the famous famous cases is ceo gets on 
a plane. As soon as he gets on a plane, he emails his assistant to say, look, we run a legal dispute with this company. Just get it sorted, transfer the money out to this, etc." Lands to a phone call saying, don't worry, the money's transferred. And they're saying, what are you talking about? And when you look at how that happens, so is that because people are stupid in an organisation? No, it's not. The reason why that happens is because for us as ethical hackers and for criminal hackers that are out there as well, it's very easy to spoof things like phone numbers. It's very easy to spoof things like text messages. It's very easy to spoof emails. So once you start denying the service on somebody's email service, for example, by signing them up to 200,000 newsletters, straight away they now can't use their email. So if we can pretend to have their email address by way of spoofing or even overtake their email address, um, they really don't have much chance in defending that. It's very, very difficult. And we've also seen highly sophisticated attackers that, that use intelligence and AI to monitor the way that people speak. So they look for things like misplaced semicolons, misplaced commas. Yeah kisses at the end of emails if, if that's what you type um, so it's very very difficult to actually work out what's legitimate and what's not so yeah it's definitely not from people being stupid attacks are changing the approach to attacks are changing and um, and it's another changing landscape as we know yeah I think that that example just brings it back to what we were talking about a minute ago so you know it, the, the employee should be empowered to think hold on my my boss my managers never asked this request before ever why now mm. all right and, and that, that should be a, like a little just a little mental red flag that just goes off to go okay there's a change in, in behavior but i mean you're absolutely right it's social engineering more than it is is a technical problem uh, it's just people you know fearing for their jobs working in an environment that they you know if i get it wrong i'm gonna get fired yeah, yeah. exactly it's you know at speed Always far too much to do. Yeah, you know. It's very, very difficult. And like you say, that, that definitely should raise red flags. Um, but, but at the same time, I do get it's very difficult for people who are personal assistants, executive assistants, etc., to also be fully up to speed with cybersecurity and, and what they can expect. So like we say, it's a very, very difficult thing to challenge. I think just coming come back to your, your question there, Peter, I think the other thing that, um, that plays into the board now understanding this landscape a little more is actually GDPR. So okay. the fact that there are so many more um, breaches that have to be publicly announced now, if mm. something happens, it's it's in the news. So just by by virtue of you know things like this podcast and just the general media awareness that the GDPR brings, it becomes a sea level conversation. It becomes a sea level focus, which does help. That's, yeah. that's a difference. Great point. Yeah, yeah great it's a difference point. compared to you know even a couple of years ago, really. No, I, I agree. I mean, if if I've got my cynical journalist hat on, I personally think we're still waiting for the the big fine, which is really going to kick that up. And I mean, I was having this argument with somebody the other day, and 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 he pointed out to me, oh, you know, Google just got fined forty four million dollars or euros, whatever, in France. And and I thought, in the time we're having this conversation, they've already earned that back probably eight <laughs> times. Yeah. Um, and it's good, and it's definitely better than it was, because, you know, if, a couple of years ago, we had the likes of Sony being fined half a million quid for losing their entire PSN network. Well, we're not, not losing, but, you know, ha having um, exposed. So they're definitely, like, fines that mean something now, but I, I still have wondered whether... GDPR is just going to get a little bit forgotten. Yeah, I mean, it it, uh, it becomes a tool for the the CISO or any security practitioner to go and have a conversation with their board and make it relatable. Yeah. You know, if we know what the, the the profitability of our company is, we know how much how much profit we're making. We can therefore make uh, a, a judgment on what our potential fine, if we had a breach, would be. Yeah. 
that becomes very much a monetary conversation, one that you can have with the board rather than, oh, can I, ha can I have a couple of million dollars because I need to buy a new firewall? Right, it, it, it's it's a very very different conversation. Yes. Um, yeah, but it was a great point bringing bringing GDPR up because I think if you spoke to a number of people five years ago and asked them about data protection, they probably weren't particularly interested. Now, if I call any company, then um, even even really kind of low level operatives are still quite clued up with GDPR. So if you want to put in a subject access request, a lot of them know how to route it. So I think that's definitely put data protection on the map. Um, and also, like when we look at, at previous funds, so for example, Talk Talk. If you've used Amazon, eBay, LinkedIn, Facebook, Dropbox, any of these big companies, you've got them to thank for giving your information away. Now, did it really matter? Not really, before GDPR. So, Mike, I imagine in the course of your work, DNS must be involved kind of in, in the way that you investigate these things. But what sort of ways are you, are you sort of approaching DNS in the way that you mitigate attacks? So with DNS, I think DNS was, was overlooked for a while. And I've, I've always used open source tools like DNS Crypt to encrypt DNS. But, but like Gary said earlier, the, it's really numbers to names. So when people understand them, and for those not familiar with how DNS works, it's the domain name system. So what happens is when you go to ebay.com, the internet doesn't speak in words and, and URLs. It speaks in numbers, speaks in IP addresses. So... If you've got DNS caching and something's really aggressively cached DNS, it will save that IP address. So that when you go to eBay, it says, right, I know that eBay is at this IP address, so I'll route to there. And then, and then it will route to that website through that. So if you can poison that at the point, whether it's on a local DNS server or, or on the device itself, then really you can change the way that that's routed. So now what we've done is rather than somebody going to the legitimate IP address of eBay, they've now gone to our IP address, which is showing an eBay phishing page, which could have the exact same functionality. So you would wouldn't know. That's the main point. You wouldn't know. And that's what's really difficult. And also, when we look at previous DNS attacks, like DIN, took down a third of the internet. So it's definitely one of the most significant attacks that we've had in, um, in recent times. So definitely DNS is, is a huge thing for us, making sure that DNS is integral and obviously checking the integrity of that and making sure that, that you are rooted to where you want to be rooted is absolutely key. So just to carry on covering the basics here, if, if the average user actually doesn't know, is it literally that they just don't know? Once it's compromised the system... There's no tell, there's no check on that so part. Obviously, you can investigate DNS attacks. So when you look at log changes, things that have been changed within DNS or, or with DNS poisoning, you can definitely investigate that. But would your average end user have the capability to do that? Probably not. So um, it is very difficult to investigate from a from an end user level, but also it is definitely a, a key area to attack when you're looking to attack an organisation. So, yeah, very difficult to investigate on a on a personal end user kind of environment, but in a corporate environment, it definitely should be an area that's investigated quite quickly. I mean, just for context, if, if we're looking at sort of DNS poisoning type attacks and, and say pushing somebody to a spoof version of a normal website, say eBay or something more corporate, w would that generally be a very targeted attack just aimed at very specific people in the organisation or is that sort of thing done as a kind of wide sweep just to get anybody in the organisation 
to go to this place? Potentially, or it depends really where, where the DNS server is placed. So sure. on, on a number of devices, that'll be local. That could be on a separate DNS server. It could be on a separate controlled DNS server um, that people are monitoring to make sure that that DNS isn't poisoned. So if you look at any big organization, which is very good in cybersecurity, undoubtedly, they'll be monitoring their DNS for changes. Um, but yeah, it's very, very difficult in, in terms of a widespread, and like you were saying earlier about people connecting to different um, Wi-Fi on different locations, because you don't know exactly where the DNS is handled from that. Um, so I think, yeah, understanding where your DNS is and, and how you can properly maintain it is, is definitely key, 100%. I think one thing I would, I would in fact, two things that I would add to, to that. So firstly, DNSSEC, DNS security extensions, have been around for a very long time, mm. uh, like a ridiculously long time. Historically, they were quite difficult to use because the top-level domains weren't signed. They are now all signed. There is no excuse for organizations not to uh, use DNSSEC signed zones because what that does is it provides chain of chain of trust for that, that uh, domain entry all the way from root, which is dot, through your top-level domain, so say dot com, down into your corporate domain, so dot eBay in the example that we, we gave a minute ago, and then down to the host itself. So you've got validation there throughout that chain that there hasn't been a poisoning attack halfway halfway down the middle. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is, whilst hijacking attacks are quite prevalent at the moment, they're actually you know some of the the more simplistic attacks actually just use character changes. So. You know, an, a, a lowercase l could look like a one, or you know, a zero instead of a, a instead of an o. That kind of stuff, or indeed, if we we get into non-Cyrillic stuff or, or the Cyrillic stuff, it, it becomes even more complex. Um, but those types of of um, vectors, uh, people can't spot them easily with their eyes, and this is where DNS security, particularly if you're using something like response policy zones, can actually really come into effect. Because then we can either whitelist domains we want, we can blacklist domains we don't want, or we can use a threat intelligence feed to feed in things like newly observed domains as I talked about earlier, or DGAs, so domain generated algorithm domains. All this kind of stuff can be fed in and then use your DNS uh, server as a security control. Still doesn't, you know, first of all, use your eyes. <laughs> That's the first thing. Make sure maybe there's a, there's a you know, it's an HTTPS site, not just HTTP, etc. But um, yeah, once we've used our eyes, then let's use a, a decent control to actually do some, some inspection of that DNS uh, zone. Maybe just almost as a way to sum up and with risk of maybe repeating ourselves, but ransomware, clearly not going anywhere. It's clearly stepping up. It's, it's clearly increasing in complexity. It's now starting to affect factories full of massive machines, and you know it's all very worrying. Just almost as a, as a kind of quick summarial step-by-step guide, what should businesses be doing to mitigate the threat of ransomware? So, absolutely, we we just to circle back to where we started. Good cyber hygiene get those backups in place get them tested make sure they work right that's the most there's no point having a backup if you don't know that it works when you need it train your users you know there's no shouldn't be a punitive environment make sure that they feel empowered to flag something that just doesn't feel or look right to them then start with the technical controls 
So again, go out to best of breed vendors, make sure that you've got a layered defense, so good next-gen firewalls, good IDS IPS, make sure DNS is absolutely in the mix. If you've got DNS in the mix, make sure it's fed with a good quality, high reputation threat intelligence feed, right? The last thing anyone wants is a bunch of false positives hitting their SIM because that just creates noise. So whatever security control you've got, make sure it's high quality threat intel that's going in that's feeding it. That, that will help with the low false positives. Once you've done all that, yeah, wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a that's a great overview, definitely. And, and what I, what I'd add to that is more about how these attacks happen. Now, when we look at, like I said, crypto locker, I had someone say to me, "Well, I'm not going to get encrypted because I don't visit porn sites." And I was like, "Well, <laughs> that isn't how it happens now." And when you when you look at the NHS with WannaCry, that used MS seventeen ten, which was Eternal Blue. So let's make no mistake about it; that is a nation state hacking tool. So um, when you come up against things like that, it's very difficult. Of course, it is. And um, I actually I actually spoke about this when when the NHS attack happened. And um, I think that everybody has kind of this attitude that there's a network administrator who didn't patch something. But actually, it's very difficult to patch MRI machines. And um, it's, it's not a simple, simple patch. Right? So combine that with coming up against nation-state malware um, or, or tools, and it's very, very difficult to stop, definitely. I mean, the NHS is such an interesting use case. I mean, many, many, many years ago, I used to be an IT person at the NHS, right? <laughs> so, right. Cool. you know, thank God I wasn't one when, uh, when WannaCry happened. I, I wouldn't have wanted to be there. But the reality is that there isn't one person at the top defining policy um, you know, there is. It's the government, right? And they're not. They're not doing it. The reality is, you have got individual hospitals, individual health authorities, individual primary care groups, even doctor surgeries, who are their own IT body, right? Their own IT department. Um, so, trying to get a policy with a one size fits all for every single one of them is. It's it's a mammoth task. So, yeah, we can understand. I think as cyber professionals, we can understand how it happened and why it happened um hopefully you know there's some lessons learned that have been deployed individual entities within the hs but yeah that's a as you say that that, that one itself is an entire podcast yeah, yeah. so that's a digression that yeah. we don't have time for today because in fact we have time for nothing else today because we are basically out of time uh thank you both very very much uh for for speaking to me today uh, i think we've heard some fascinating insights here we went from the uh clear and present danger of what's really worrying everybody with with ransomware to how you can protect from the basics how you can step up a little bit how you can actually figure out what what's really behind these things you know and, and how actually dns probably plays a bigger part in these problems than, than a lot of people tend to think so thank you to gary and to mike join us next time on threat talk for more cybersecurity discussion and if you've not yet caught up with the other parts in the series you can find them over on infoblocks.com i've been peter gothard this has been threat talk thanks for listening <laughs>